It's time for the What in the Podcast. A man buried his father three days before. On the third night, a knock comes from his front door. As he opens his door, he is greeted by his deceased father, who stands before his son, demanding food. He feeds the revenant but refuses the next evening. The following day, the man, too, is dead. The people of the town begin to tell stories of dreams of the man's father visiting them, and each one claims to have lost a significant amount of blood. Does a vampire rule the night? Tonight we discuss the history of real vampires. Welcome to episode 118 of What in the Podcast. Welcome to the What in the Podcast with your hosts, Kent Whittington and Adriana Camito and Tracy Lynn Hernandez. Hello and welcome to the What in the Podcast. Hiya. <laughs> this is turning to our standard greeting to start the show. <laughs> I want to ask how you're, how you're doing, dear, because you're the one that always goes, hiya. I have a migraine. You have a migraine. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope it gets better as we go through the night. So do I, because the next step is not a happy step. It's not a happy step, no. No. no I had a migraine yesterday. I'm really sorry for you, Tracy. You guys suffer migraines so badly. I feel sorry for both of you. best part was it was one that came on as I was going to work in the morning. And because Mama had a bunch of work to, uh, uh, meetings to do, Granty couldn't take any time off. And yeah, it was a a fun day of work. But it was with a four year old who decided that was a day she'd be cranky butt all day. Well, that's in the nature of a four year old to be this cranky when you don't need them to be cranky. This is true at work or wherever else. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> how's your week been? It's been a week. Been a week. <laughs> I had physical therapy today. So if I yelp, it's because I moved my shoulder. But I moved well, my shoulder. <laughs> raising your arms up and down going, yay, that's yeah, definitely moved the shoulder. Yeah, I can move my shoulder higher than I've ever seen her be able to do I've it. Got, so. At least in the past two years. And this is the last one? Since, I've, since I can remember, I've never seen you be able to move your arm any higher mm -hmm. than yeah. you did. And is this the last physical therapy you said? I've got three more sessions before... Um, you they, graduate? They, they They say I can continue it. <laughs> before you graduate. But... Um, <laughs> We've all, we've also been talking, going, you know, I have a grandbaby on the way soon, and I'm already stretched kind of thin on getting time to go to physical therapy and time to go to her appointments and time to get. <laughs> so, Ow. at the end of, of my physical therapy, these three, we're gonna see what my measurement is on on my range of motion, and then I'm walking out the door, going, "I miss you all. I hope to see you in the real world." Because I like my therapists; they're yeah. awesome. Well, I'm going to need some therapy soon myself, I think, for a different reason, though. I was on vacation two weeks ago, uh -huh. and the week before that, I was in massive back pain. Uh -huh. And taking that week off actually helped. My back stopped hurting and everything. Well, two weeks, I'm back to work, and that pain is back in the very same spot it was before. 
Uh, insoles in your shoes? More like insoles in my back. Well, insoles in your <laughs> shoes will help with the insoles in your back because those will become the insoles for your back. Well, I actually got new shoes and it didn't help. So, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. Orthotics. Yeah. They're yeah. very helpful. You need to be measured for orthotics. Yeah. How about you, dear? You spent time over at our... I watched a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> a crazy... Ins actually, most of the zoo was fine except for the new little zoo being the little zoo being <laughs> the one that pees as he walks adrian recently spent recently spent time at my brother's house and my brother-in-law and uh spent time with their animals their zoo their zoo which is much like our zoo no they're they're no <laughs> theirs is crazy no theirs is definitely crazier they they have a routine that's like really scary precise and everything so no you're well, not it didn't going to work at all for you did it no <laughs> <laughs> especially when oh they're gonna howl and wake you up at 4 30 in the morning and we i was like they didn't do that at all so i mean that that was i mean they woke i didn't get up i, I woke up on my own at five o'clock one morning and they're they're all snoring i'm like okay they're all snoring i get up and i'm like okay no how to figure out nothing and, and then the little one tried to kill me this one you check gravity well, no. the, the little one is a Labrador. Yeah, who, just, just who's little now. Or he's only twelve weeks old. He's little now, but he's pretty good size for little. He's nuts. And being a lab, he's going to get a lot bigger. Nope. And, and being a lab, and he be wants goofy. to be a, a love yeah. bug, but he's kind of—I'll just say he's gross, and we'll just leave it alone. He's a lab. He's no. dangerous. He's dangerous. No, he's dangerous, and he's gross. Anyway. The other ones, I could, <laughs> I love to pieces. One of them slept in the bed with us and and was a cuddle bear. Wanted to be all over me all the time, next to me, had to be with me. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm cool with this. And then the other one that snores like a freight train because mm -hmm. he's a pug. Shout out to my brother's dogs. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> I love you, Cooper. And Monty finally got used to me. Mm -hmm. Yay. So, yeah. It was fun. I'd do it again. Well, just as long as the little one starts getting some manners. What's this manners thing you speak of? Ha! They're dogs. I don't want to be killed again. <laughs> I, I don't want to land on my on my face again. I tried to let him out to go potty and he tripped me. Yeah, he wasn't there I, and then he was there I, and I'm I, screaming. I'm over and there crying. too at that time and I hear from the from the bed from the bedroom. Can't and I'm bawling my eyes. I'm bawling her eyes out, face down on the floor. And let me let me tell our, our listeners, I am using a walker right now. So I was trying not to use it in the house because you know I'm I using a walker before this happened. Yeah, so yeah. I was using a walker, and and it made it worse because ow, everything hurt. Well, at least you had the walker though. Yes, that's true. I feel ridiculous using it though at my age, but it's, well, it's the only way I can move around. Mm -hmm. Without falling on my face, so well, we do what we have to in our old age. Anyway, enough about what I did. This yeah, week. we're six minutes in. We got to start the. Podcast. <laughs> yeah, let's start the podcast. Sorry, guys. What's this thing you think of? Nah. So, anybody want to say what our tell us tell our listeners? Well, I get this out yet. Anybody want to tell? Our, yeah, exactly. Anybody want to tell our listeners what tonight's podcast is all about? Well, it's not going to be you. Apparently <laughs> not. That's all. Well, and we're going to do the real vampire legends. And by real vampire legends, we mean the the inspiration, the the the, the mythos behind it. And, and we're not talking about you know. Well, we're not really talking about inspiration so much. We're talking about 
accused mm -hmm. vampires. Legends of people who are actually accused of vampirism. But that gives the inspiration for everyone else's stories down the line. This is true. And it we're going to end all that. So let's go ahead and start. This is Real Vampire Legends, not Daddy Vlad or Mama Liz. <laughs> <laughs> and for those who don't know who we're talking about, Vlad the Impaler and Elizabeth Bathroy. Yes. Because, yes. yes, we know how. And we will bring up Dracula tonight at some point here and there. But, um, you know. Everybody knows about Vlad the Impaler. Everybody knows about Elizabeth Bathory. So we kind of wanted to shy away from them and talk about some that you may not know so much about. Yes. So anyway, the traits of the modern day vampire are pretty well established. Yes. Yes. Um, they don't sparkle. No. They, <laughs> they shouldn't sparkle. They shouldn't sparkle. That's true. And I'm glad you brought that up. because <laughs> I was going sparkle, to. <laughs> but, but the rest of us who have read her works have realized those are fairies masquerading as vampires. Yes. Like There's the Lenan she. Yes, yeah. they're, they're just bloodthirsty fairies. That's why they <laughs> sparkle. I'll take your word. I'll for go it. with that. Sure, I like not? that theory better. It's, it's a fan theory that has uh -huh. been running around of that, or or you know, hey Vlad, you know that yeah, or was it uh, dear Vlad? Remember that one night stand? We have a son. His name is Edward. Love Tinkerbell. So, <laughs> oh my head, <laughs> oh my head. That's been around for. I know. Oh my head. Oh my it's head. Still funny. But I mean, what are their traits? I mean, they have fangs, they drink blood, no reflection, no reflection, can live damn near forever. Yeah, they can be warded off by garlic or, or killed with a stake through the heart. Or some some theory or some mythos is that iron they can't so iron rods, yeah, yep. running uh, water, running water, running water. They can't cross running water. Sunlight will burn them. Um, so I guess all those people that are heart, allergic to sun are, are vampires in disguise. And we'll get into that too. Sorry. <laughs> But they didn't. Oh, they didn't start out. out. Yes. <laughs> but vampires didn't start out so clearly defined, of course. Mm. Scholars suspect that the modern conception of these Halloween monsters, as they call them, evolved from various traditional beliefs that were held throughout Europe. Uh, the beliefs centered around the fear that the dead, once buried, could still harm the living. Mm -hmm. So let's get into some of these uh, possible reasons for the belief in the vampire lore. Mm -hmm. Who wants to go first? I can read it. Okay. Why so... don't you start? First one we have up is decomposition. Uh -huh. That's a word I can read. Decomposition, not decomposition. Decompensation? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, don't make me laugh. I'm sorry. Uh, not you, him. Often these legends arose from misunderstanding of how bodies decompose. As corpse, corpse's skin shrinks, its teeth and fingernails can appear to have grown longer. As internal organs break down, the corpse upon exhumation can appear to be bloated with blood. And the corpse is impaled, say with an iron rod or wooden stake. Gases built up in the body will be released, and the corpse may even groan as a result. See, I did bring up the iron rod. Yep. Uh, these involuntary movements can give the corpse the appearance of life. Cool. What's the other reason, dear? Tuberculosis, The Panic in New England by Crystal Ponty. The History Channel archives updated October 28th. 2019. Yes, I did cite the uh, we cite places everything I, we can, I got so. these from, so go ahead and read that, dear. As soon as I take my glasses off, because, yeah, I'm blind, but not that blind. More than 200 years after the Salem witch trials, ripples of another hysteria struck New England, the fear of vampires. During the 19th century, the spread of tuberculosis or consumption claimed the lives of entire families in Rhode Island, Connecticut, Vermont, and other parts of the Northeast. Northwest, yeah, northeast. You're right. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll shut up now. Are you sure? Yeah, I know, but go ahead. <laughs> no. between 1786, when health officials first began recording mortality rates, and 1800, the disease claimed 
2% of New England's population back then. That's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. The death toll was not only terrifying, it was also a horrific way to die. Consumptives lost weight, coughed up blood, their skin turned ashen, and sometimes died a slow death, almost as if something was sucking the life out of them, says retired Connecticut state archaeologist Nicholas Bellantoni. New Englanders didn't deny the reality of consumption, but before the germ theory at a time when physicians were unable to explain how certain infectious diseases were spread, hopeless villagers believed that some of those who perished from consumption preyed upon their living family members. Some described New England vampires as a microbe or bacterium with fangs. Yay. Sorry. Mm-hmm. To prevent an ongoing vampire attack and the disease from spreading, panicked citizens dug up bodies, performed various rituals, including burning internal, eh, internal organs. I can talk. One such exhumation took place in March 1892 at the Chestnut Hill Cemetery in Exeter, Rhode Island. Local people brought shovels and picks and together exhumed the corpses of Mary Brown and her daughters, 20-year-old Mary Olive and 19-year-old Mercy Lena. Each of the women had grown sickly, wasting away and eventually succumbing to a mysterious affliction. Doctors thought they knew the cause of death, but the concerned citizens had another theory. And we'll get into Mary a little bit later in the podcast. Mercy? Mercy, sorry, Mercy, yeah. Okay. George Brown was among those who believed something more might be lurking on his farm. Shortly after Mercy Lena, Lena passed away, his son Edwin fell ill too. Desperate to save his the last of his kin, George gave the townspeople permission, we can talk, to dig up the bodies of his wife and daughters. Once on earth, the crowd discovered that the corpses of Mary and Mary Olive had rotted away. Mercy's body, on the other hand, was oddly well-preserved, despite lying in a crypt for several months. It looked as if her hair and nails had grown, and when pierced, her delicate skin still contained drops of blood. For those who had gathered these these telltale signs confirmed their suspicions. Mercy was a vampire. Sorry. A village doctor witnessed the makeshift graveside autopsy and re- reiterated the suspected cause of death. He explained how the cold New England weather would have kept her body preserved. Something I said already today. Mm-hmm. The townspeople wouldn't listen. Panicked, they removed Mercy's heart and burned it on a nearby rock. It is believed that this, in this ritualistic fashion, Edwin then consumed the ashes. Unfortunately, it did nothing to slow the progression of his illness. The young sales clerk died a few months later. Yeah, they did believe that they, they burning left out the, some the part organs of the story, them. though. Um, this is the way it was written. Uh, I didn't well, leave anything. I know out. more about this. <laughs> this story. is not my story. Edwin was actually <laughs> sent away. Yes, to a was. different climate, to a more arid climate, and he got better. And then they, he came back, and he got worse. But they didn't uh, didn't talk about that. Him, they didn't know. they didn't presume to know that that was the reason why. Yeah, yeah but he was sent away. At but one they point. did think that if you burned the heart mm-hmm. and consumed the ashes, that or even consumed the heart itself, that would be a cure it's, for. The other problem is, is tuberculosis is is contagious. viral and contagious. So you take a body out. Uh-huh. Even if you burn it to ashes. In the cold cooker, sure, but still cooking it's away. It's doing its own juices, yeah. And then you touch it and you spread it. Mm-hmm. And you get more people sick because mm-hmm. tuberculosis. Yeah. Anyway, and especially before the fire, you're touching it. Well, organs but again, whatever. that was before anybody knew about germs this or contagions true. or anything like that. Well, <laughs> there was that doctor that, uh, that was, I forget, they were laughed at about germs and talking about washing hands with surgery or seeing each patient and uh, the doctor was laughed at 
-hmm. and almost drummed out of the medical community at the time. But I guess I forgot, I forget how this goes. Eventually it was proven that cleaning of the hands helped stop the spread. I don't remember the name of the doctor though, but I remember reading the article a while back. I'm brain dead. Okay. Should I finish? Yeah, please continue. (laughs) (laughs) The Brown exhumations in Rhode Island known as the vampire capital of America was just one among tens of similar exhumations throughout New England at the time. Henry David Thoreau even mentions one in an 1859 journal. Vampire myth likely inspired 1897 novel Dracula. Bram Stoker, perhaps feeding on these fears, published his novel Dracula in 1897. He described the vampire character as a spectral being or ghost possessing a human body who left the grave at night to suck the blood from the living. The vampires feared in New England took on a less fantastical but still terrifying form. The authentic, excuse me, image of New England's vampires would be a corpse that did not appear to have completely decomposed. One that had fresh, that is, liquid blood in its heart or other vital organs, which indicated that the corpse had been inhabited by some sort of evil, spiritual, not corporeal, that was draining the life from living family members, said Michael Bell, a folklorist and author of the book Food for the Dead, On the Trail of New England's Vampires. People believe that the spiritual connection that some suspected vampires had with their living relatives allowed them to gain access to their victims without even leaving their graves. The practice of exhuming the deceased to halt the evil practice of vampires was likely introduced to New England by traveling healers from Eastern Europe and Germany. One clue says Bell is, says Bell is a 1784 letter to the editor published in Willington, Connecticut newspaper in which a town official complained about a foreign quack doctor who was promoting the consumption ritual and had induced a townsman to exhume the bodies of his two children. Bell has documented over 80 vampire rituals in New England and continues to uncover new cases. He estimates the practice began no later than 1784 and persisted through at least 1892. The evidence also suggests that this practice was known and accepted and sometimes actually endorsed by the community at large, by town authorities and even by clergymen. Well, it's easy when you got a when you build up that fear and create a mob mentality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fear is a very I mean that's very powerful motivator. It's also where you get the notion of burn the witch. Yeah. <laughs> Things I like still that. Like and, black. People or a person can be rational. Mm-hmm. People are dumb. Yeah. <laughs> I am inclined to agree with that statement. Nice paraphrase. <laughs> you know, I need to actually tattoo that on my body because mm-hmm. I use it too damn much. Yep. <laughs> in parts of Massachusetts and Maine, bodies were simply flipped over and left alone. In Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Vermont, villagers burned the hearts and livers from bodies of suspected vampires. In, eight, in the 1990s, archaeologists discovered 29 skeletons in a gravel pit in Griswold, Connecticut which had once served as a colonial era, era, era I can talk, mm-hmm. graveyard. The body showed signs of tuberculosis and had been rearranged into skull and crossbones patterns. And we'll have more on them later on, The too. case known as the Jewett City Vampires revealed one of the more unusual consumption rituals. That sounds a little weird, too. Mm-hmm. If enough time had passed and there was nothing but skeletal remains and no signs of soft tissue, they, New Englanders, had to make a decision as to whether the corpse was undead. Bell and Tony explains if villagers believed they had uncovered the undead, they would rearrange the bones by decapitation and sometimes uproot the legs to prevent the vampires from leaving the grave. 
yeah, I guess that would do it. But still, considering well, there are other ways to do that too. They would uh, they would uh, inter them uh, upside down, so they wouldn't know which way is up. Mm -hmm. They would uh, shackle a foot. Shackle a foot. They'd put them in in their coffins backwards. They already said that head to toe. Yeah, they would uh, upside down. Of course, no, no. you know the rods. They would also put a rock. Yes, in but, the, but that's, in the jaw. that wasn't a New England thing. That's I'm just European talking about different thing, ways in general. Yeah. But yeah, you're yeah. right about that. Just things I remember from uh -huh, you. Uh -huh. <laughs> anyway, sorry, dear. Please continue. The vampire folk belief started winding down by the end of the 19th century when German physician and microbiologist Robert Koch Koch Cook. Cook, Cook. Uh -huh. okay, Cook, identified the bacteria responsible for tuberculosis. Science then slowly began to replace folklore in explaining the disease that had claimed so many lives and devastated families. These people in early New England history were just trying to stop the deaths says Bill and Tawny. They were desperate, and when all else failed, some families were willing to go into the graves if it meant saving themselves and their families. Mm -hmm. Yup. So, hey, folks, it's not a vampire, and you have a bacteria. Mm -hmm. And you're spreading it by mm -hmm. zooming your family. Yep. Zooming. Don't talk. do that. <laughs> it's not nice to play with the dead. Let the dead rest, dog it. Let the dead rest. Now, here's another reason for vampirism, to, to, to have a belief in vampirism, and this is in living people. This mm -hmm. is uh, the disease called porphyria, um, you know, symptoms of vampirism. Uh, this is from Vampire Myths Originated with a Real Blood Disorder, uh, published Monday, May 29, 2020, by Michael Heffern, Assistant Professor at the Department of Pediatrics. Uh, he says, the concept of a vampire predates Bram Stoker's tales of Count Dracula, obviously, <laughs> probably by several centuries. But did vampires ever really exist? In 1819, 80 years before the publication of Dracula, John Polidori, an Anglo-Italian physician, published a novel called The Vampire. Stoker's novel, however, became the benchmark for our description of vampires. But how and where did this concept develop? It appears that the folklore surrounding the vampire phenomena originated in the Balkans, where Stoker located his tale of Count Dracula. Stoker never traveled to Transylvania or any other part of Eastern Europe. The lands held by the fictional Count would be in modern-day Romania and Hungary. Uh, the writer was born and brought up in Dublin. He was a friend to Oscar Wilde and William Gladstone. He was both a liberal and a home ruler in favor of home rule for Ireland. He turned to theater and became business manager of the Lyceum Theater in London. It was his friendship with Armin Vanbury, a Hungarian writer, that led to his fascination with vampire folklore. He consulted Vanbury in the writing of Dracula, whose main character was loosely fashioned on Vlad the Impaler, which we've talked about here, mm -hmm. um, bloodthirsty prince born in Transylvania in 1431. But where did the myth of vampires come from? Like any myths, it's based partly on fact. A blood disorder called porphyria, which has been with us for millennia, became prevalent among the nobility and royalty of Eastern Europe. Porphyria is an inherited blood disorder that causes the body to produce less heme, a critical component of hemoglobin. The protein in red blood cells that carries oxygen from the lungs to the body tissue. Seems likely that, the, that this disorder is the origin of the vampire myth. In fact, porphyria is sometimes referred to as the vampire disease. Mm -hmm. Now, let's consider the symptoms of patients with porphyria. First of all, sensitivity to sunlight. Extreme sensitivity to sunlight leading to facial disfigurement, blackened skin, and hair growth. 
In addition to the disfigurement, uh, repeated attacks of the disease cause the gums to recede, exposing the teeth, which then look like fangs. And because of the urine of persons with porphyria being dark red, folklore surmised that they were drinking blood. In fact, some physicians had recommended that these patients drink blood to compensate for the defect in their red blood cells. But this recommendation was for animal blood. It's more likely that these patients who only went out after dark were judged to be looking for blood, and their fangs led to folktales about vampires. Believe it or not, it also gives you an aversion to garlic. Yep. Uh, the sulfur content of garlic could lead to an attack of porphyria, leading to very acute pain. Thus, the aversion to garlic. Uh, and porphyria, basically, a lot of nerve pain yes. is is attributed with the disease as well. So then, yeah, if the if the garlic exacerbates that, then yeah, mm -hmm. you're going to get that. If you're living in chronic pain, you suddenly have more pain reduced to you. Yeah. So, yeah, before I knew about that, I always wondered how come garlic affected Dracula. It didn't make any sense to me, but now I know. So, reflections not seen in mirrors. In mythology, a vampire is not able to look in a mirror or cannot see its reflection. The facial disfigurement caused by porphyria becomes worse with time. Poor oxygenation leads to destruction of facial tissue and collapse of the facial structure. Patients understandably avoid mirrors, so it's not yep. that they can't see themselves, they don't want to see themselves. And, of course, there's the fear of the crucifix. During the Spanish Inquisition, 1478 to 1834, 600 vampires, in quotes, were reportedly burned at the stake. Some of these accused vampires were innocent, sufferers of porphyria. Porphyria's patients had good reason to fear the Christian faith and Christian symbols. That makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Acute attacks of the disease are associated with considerable pain and both mental and physical disturbance. This condition has been ascribed to the English King George III, although subsequent analysis has shed some doubt on Porphyria as the cause of his madness. And yet we're still going to go into that. So nowadays, with our scientific knowledge of Porphyria, instead of fearing these folks, we can love and care for them. Porphyria remains incurable. And treatment's mainly supportive, you know, pain control, fluids, and avoidance of drugs and chemicals, chemicals sorry, that provoke acute attacks. Some success has been achieved with stem cell transplants as well. Bram Stoker, uh, could he have known about the existence of porphyria and, and its link to the vampire folklore? Uh, it was only in 1911, eight years before Stoker's book appeared, that the disease of porphyria... Uh, and there are several types of it. Uh, first time it was classified by H. Gunther. However, physician, researcher, and author George Harley had described a patient with porphyria a few years earlier. Through his gothic novel, Stoker surely wins the prize for the best example of myth entangled with medicine. And uh, as I said, the story is an edited excerpt from the book of Plagues of Vamp and Vampires. Unbelievable <coughs> myths and unbelievable facts from medical practice by Michael Hefferon. Hefferon, sorry. <laughs> no woozles, no heffalumps. It's all good. I was only teasing. So, so now that brings up an interesting question. Mm. Are the royals vampires? Or are they werewolves? I knew you were going to say that. Because <laughs> they seem to be... I'm looking, so, so high. Diving down rabbit holes. Whee! 
they show royalty royalty runs the same blood disease throughout the, all of them. They all some have some sort of of um, hemocrit deficiency. And most of that is because of inbreeding. Yes, because that's the best way to keep everything pure. I'm so purebred and inbred. Um, but at the same point, looking at this, a good portion of the royal family is either born in a new moon or a full moon, or in the case of of um, uh, oh, God. who is this? Uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, oh, I just lost his name. Because they will send a doctor witch. <laughs> uh, one of the. Uh, who is I it? mean, werewolf, sorry. <laughs> um, where do you go? I'll get the, the headline back. Oh, my goodness, that sucks. Um, one of the. the oh, God. Uh, Eclipse. Uh, the, the Prince William was born a few hours after a solar eclipse. So, you know, the, now, now, yes, people are born. Well, that's just born under a bad sign, basically. <laughs> you know, pe people are born at any time and everything else. But but there's there's a good portion where, you know, when when 10% of the family is born on either a full or a new moon or, you know, a solar event, makes you wonder. Mm -hmm. And it's not just because I'm a Doctor Whoaholic, I swear. But it's got a lot to do with that, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> okay, so so when we do the vampire or the werewolves of of England, that's not the name of the episode. But that's okay. Tenth Doctor and Rose. Mm -hmm. so when we when they did that one, I of course chose a rabbit hole and got in trouble. Go figure. And it was um, looking going. There's ever since that point. Now, granted, that's also when the most inbreeding was being put in. You were no longer pulling from um, Italy and France and Germany and as much as let's keep the family together right, right. in heavy woobles. Um, the the amount of, of blood disease came up. More the Habsburg more. jaw came out. Yes. Sorry. The Habsburg jaw, it, the Habsburg dynasty died out because of inbreeding and yes. inbreeding and inbreeding. That's true. Yeah. So it's one Sorry. of those. Yeah. Well, like you said, purebred equals inbred. Yes. I'm yeah. so purebred. I'm inbred. Yep, yep, yep. I'm not, but that's a but anyway, you brought up my, grandpa, my grandma and my, my auntie. But you brought up the fact that blood disease is part of the, part of the inbreeding. Exactly. Which also links in porphyria again. Exactly. And we're going to talk about some of the royals who suffer from porphyria because of this. Um, who would like to start? My computer just took a poop, so... I'll start. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start with King George III. The theory that King George III suffered from variegate porphyria was first put forward in 1966 by a British mother-son psychiatrist team, sorry, Ida McAlpine and Richard Hunter, citing the telltale symptom of purple urine as proof. You know, we said red earlier, but it's like a yes. deep red, kind of purplish color. Also happens if you eat a lot of beets. Yep. That's just, you know, and that's a way to get more iron into your system. Anyway. Versus eating carrots and your skin turning orange. Yes. Your eyes will turn Which has nothing to do with what we're talking your about. Your eyes will turn orange with you eat too much carrots, too. Mm -hmm. So they confidently put forward their claims <laughs> in a paper in the British Medical Journal entitled The Insanity of King George III, a classic case of porphyria. Which was followed by followed up in 1968 by a further paper, Porphyria in the Royal Houses of Stuart, Hanover, and Prussia. Theory formed the basis of a long-running play by Alan Bennett, the madness of King George III, 
which was later adapted for a film starring Nigel Hawthorne in the title role. George III's recurring bouts of illness resulted in withdrawal from society to recuperate out of the public eye at Kew Palace near Richmond. George was often violent and talked incessantly and often obscenely for hours at a time. He was subjected to the appalling medical treatment of the day, bound and gagged and strapped to a chair for hours. His urine was reported to have been blood red by his physicians. George eventually made a recovery and in the following 12 years suffered only slight attacks of his illness. In 1810, he suffered a total relapse from which he was never to recover. The queen continued to visit her husband, but he failed to recognize her. His eldest son, George, Prince of Wales, was appointed regent. As it became apparent that George's illness was this time permanent, even Queen Charlotte, his once devoted wife, sadly ceased to visit him. Well, I'm glad when I had the red urine, it wasn't porphyria. No, it was just cancer. Just cancer, yeah. See, I had that, but that was because someone kicked me in the kidney and well, that'll do it too. crushed 90% of my, my uh, cones in my mm -hmm. kidney. But that's just me. Either way, that's not fun. No. Yeah. So anyway, the king existed at Windsor Castle, sorry, <laughs> for the next 10 years, neglected and unkempt, a blind and deaf octogenarian. So he lived quite a while with this. Yeah, they don't yep. use, people with periphery don't live that long yeah. usually. So even in his insanity, he never forgot his exalted status, although he ceased to shave and now had a long white beard. Merlin. He always wore a purple dressing gown with his garter star pinned to his chest. Yeah, he could have looked a lot like Merlin. <laughs> <clears throat> he, all he needs is a conical hat. He was reported to have had lucid moments when he agonized pitifully about what he'd become. He was never informed when Queen Charlotte died in 1818. At Christmas 1819, George suffered another violent attack of porphyria. After talking incessantly for 58 hours, he sank into a coma. He was mercifully released from his nightmare existence by death in 16th of February, 1820. It was further theorized that George inherited the disease from his five, five greats grandmother, Mary, Queen of Scots. <coughs> Excuse me. All of this part of the theory is subject to debate. Mary's symptoms included gastric ulcers, rheumatism, and hysteria. She also experienced bouts of abdominal pain, lameness, Fits and episodes of mental disturbance since her teens. You're talking about Mary Queen of Scots? Yep. Yes. Okay. It is assumed Mary inherited the disorder from her father, James V of Scotland. Both suffered documented attacks that could be described as symptoms of porphyria. <coughs> so, needless to say, it's running rampant through the royal family here. Yes. Mary's son, James I and, and V, I'm sorry, six. there we go. James I and six is also often cited as suffering from the condition. According to one historian, James suffered from itchy skin, gout, and abdominal pain. James' physician kept detailed notes on his royal patient, <clears throat> excuse me, which described his urine as being purple as alicante wine, a sign of porphyria. Malcapine concluded that all these symptoms added up to a mild case of porphyria. Although other descendants of George III claimed to have suffered from porphyria where, uh, where his granddaughter, I'm sorry, among other descendants, where his granddaughter, Princess Charlotte Augusta of Wales, the only child of George IV, and his first cousin, Carolyn of Brunswick. The princess was pregnant with a child which was expected to be the heir in the next generation to the British throne. 
She went into labor on November 3rd of 1817. The birth proved to be difficult and protracted. Carolyn's ordeal lasted for 50 hours. Finally, the child, yeah, that's a long time. With no pain Morgan, meds. don't listen to this. With no pain meds. <laughs> I don't think she listens Thank to our the podcast. One for medication nowadays. Yep. Finally, the child was born at 9 o'clock on the 6th of November. It was a boy born dead. Though Charlotte seemed at first to be recovering well from the horrendous ordeal, she complained that evening of severe stomach pains and began to vomit. She later developed a pain in her chest before going into convulsions. Oh, she had eclampsia. Uh, it's been suggested that Charlotte may have died as a result of porphyria, actually. Mm, sounds more like so, so pain in the chest and, and throwing up. She possibly had a blood clot that migrated to her lung. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just as someone who doesn't, you know, who, who fears that childbirth. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, you got to remember when this report was done, too. That yes. Things like that probably We're weren't. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so next would be Princess Charlotte of Prussia. George III's second great-granddaughter, Princess Victoria, Queen Victoria's eldest daughter, and her daughter, Princess Charlotte of Prussia, born on the 24th of July, 1860, was further suspected of suffering from the condition. Charlotte described in her letters to her physician, suffering terrible pains in the abdominal area which wandered around her body, being lame, having blisters all over her face, and having dark red urine. References to similar symptoms in the correspondence of her mother, Vicky, was, uh, has been uncovered. Her daughter, Princess Fiodora of Saxe-Meningen, uh, born May 19th of 1879, is also claimed to have suffered from the disease. Recent medical tests performed on the remains of Charlotte and Fiodora, who committed suicide at the age of 66 in 1945, have revealed that both probably suffered from porphyria. DNA tests carried out on Princess Charlotte's remains revealed a mutation that affected the gene that codes for proto, uh, let me try this here, proto for, I can't do it, okay. proto for furinogen oxidase. Proto, I got it. Proto fer, yeah. <laughs> what I said. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> proto porphyrinogen oxidase. Okay which controls the transition from step five to step six in heme production. Frederick the Great of Prussia, who lived from 1712 to 1786, the grandson of George I, is believed to have suffered from, the acute, from an acute form of porphyria, like his relative George III. He experienced regular vomiting and temporary paralysis in addition to widespread nerve pain. Adelaide of Prussia, from, uh, born in 1891, died in 1971, a uh, descendant of George III's grandfather, George II, was also confirmed by MacAlpine and Hunter as a further royal porphyria sufferer by a study of her medical records conserved in the Thuringian State Archives in Meningen. Queen Victoria III's second great-grandson, Prince William of Gloucester, eldest son of Prince Harry, Duke of Gloucester, a son of King George V, first cousin of the Queen, who died in an air crash in 1972 at the age of 31, was reliably diagnosed with variegate porphyria. In August of 1968, Prince William was examined by Dr. Henry Bellringer, 
at the request of his mother, Princess Alice of Gloucester. William was found to be suffering from fever and cutaneous hepatic symptoms beginning in December of 1965 and lasting several months. He'd since noticed that his skin was prone to a blistering rash, particularly in exposure to sunshine. Some of Prince William's symptoms were typical of porphyria. Dr. Bellringer tentatively diagnosed porphyria, although he was aware of the theory of the royal family's history of porphyria then being put forward by McElpine and Hunter. He stated he tried not to let it influence him. With all the symptoms, I was left with little option but to diagnose the prince's condition as porphyria. William was later examined by hematologists at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge and also by Professor Ishihara in Tokyo, both of whom also concluded he was uh, suffering from variegate porphyria by then in remission. Yay, remission. Yay, remission. <laughs> that makes me wonder if uh, other people like uh, King Charles currently, Queen Elizabeth, any of them had issues with porphyria. Because <clears throat> they, they're from a time where you bred into the royal family. Yes. You didn't breed you didn't you didn't, outside. You didn't reach outside unless it was somehow... I mean, Charles and Die, yeah, then you're starting to get a little yeah. more intermixed. Um, you, you have outside blood brought in, but. With William and Harry, they're not even. With, and with, with William and Harry, the women that they are currently with are not, they weren't born royals. Yes. So you're starting to get a little bit of that mixture right yes, out of the system. You're getting more mixed in. Yep. Kind of thankfully. So hopefully <laughs> their kids will not suffer like their, their uh, ancestors did. Hopefully. So next up, uh, now we're going to start talking about vampires. Vampires, okay. <laughs> Sorry, folks, it's taken so long, but we finally okay, got there. We, we have input. We, we, we wanted have to we wanted to set the base for this and yep, yep. Uh, overset so, the base for this. Well, yes, and stop. Want to make sure everybody has an understanding yes. of what we, we want what we want modern vampires are really all about. A complete yes. Yep. So now we're going to actually talk about a few vampires in uh, in history. Not myths. These are actual people who were accused of vampirism or did things that make them think like they were vampires. Uh, first up is uh, one of my favorites and not one that I can find in a lot of places. Um, it's the legend of the Carter brothers, which were uh, New Orleans sibling vampire duo. Yep, yep, yep. My computer's back up and running again. So. Okay, would you like to tell the story? Sure. Okay. This is by Jody Smith and was updated January 11th of 2022. The, the Louisiana city of New Orleans is infamous for many things, like streets filled with debauchery during Mardi Gras and infamous murderers of, uh, like, sorry, murderers like Madame Leloy. Its blood-soaked history is filled with monsters disguised as regular people, with tales of witchery, ghosts, and vampires around every corner. Two of the lesser-known fiends of New Orleans are actually a pair of brothers named John and Wayne Carter. Legend has it the two Dockwork brothers were vampires who snatched up more than a dozen victims in the 1930s, holding them captive in their shared home in order to drain and drink their blood. After one of the prisoners escaped from their shared home and alerted police, the full scope of the mania was revealed. While the brothers were tried and executed for their crimes, many seemed claim sorry, many claimed to see them still haunting the streets of New Orleans, taking their place along the grand city, grand lore of the city. I can read it. Yeah, they're, they're still seen today, supposedly. According to the lore, one day in 1932, or perhaps 34, a young girl escaped from the house shared by the brothers, John and Wayne. Sorry, I swallow. Uh, she made her way down Royal Street in New Orleans to a, a, sorry, a police officer stopped her and listened to her incredible story. 
Supposedly, she and others were tied up in the Carter home so the pair could drink their blood. The girl had uh, her wrist cut to enable a long, slow bleed. And depending on the report, she either offered to take the officer back to her former prison at the corner of Royal Street and St. Anne Street, or was rushed to the hospital. Regardless of how the police did make it, regardless of how the police did make it back to the Carter home to investigate the girl's claims of vampires in the French Quarter. Police admitted to Carter home and found the re residents were absent. Upon breaking in, authorities allegedly found upwards of a dozen bodies with wrists slit and blood drained. There are also at least four captives still tied up with chairs, sorry, two chairs, with bandages, but bleeding wrists. Some bodies were wrapped in sheets and all appeared as though they had been there for many days. The Carter brothers were nonchalantly working their dock job, unworried about their prey escaping or the authorities. Police decided to wait until the brothers wait in the brothers' apartment for them to return in order to apprehend them. Some sources say that the police left 10 of their largest officers in the Carter apartment to take the alleged vampires when they returned uh, to feed, sorry, returned after dark to feed. Wow, I can read. Apparently, the brothers worked from pre-dawn to dusk, removing the bandages from their captives' wrists and drinking their blood before wrapping them back up again. When the brothers walked into the apartment that night, it supposedly took seven or eight police officers to subdue the two average-sized men. Other versions of the legends say the brothers, each standing around five foot six inches and weighing under 160 pounds, did fight all four officers and leapt from the balcony unharmed. The two bolted off in the night. In this telling, the police recouped and decided to hit the docks where the Carter brothers worked the next day. In the version which the Carter brothers escaped the ambush in their apartment, they make the mistake of keeping their everyday routine. They showed up for work in the docks the next day and police arrested them. As soon as they were in cuffs, John and Wayne supposedly began admitting they were vampires. They also asked police to go ahead and kill them because they would continue capturing people and drinking blood if they remained alive. Although at least one version of the Carter brothers legend says they escaped immediately after the captive did, most of the stories seem see them tied as serial killers in court, presumably unable to convince the courts of their superhuman status. They were held accountable for their actions, found guilty, and sentenced to death for their crimes. After their executions, held either immediately or years after the guilty verdicts, the men were laid to rest in their vault in New Orleans. When the next Carter family member passed away, the vault holding John and Wayne was opened to slide in a new casket. However, the vault allegedly had not held no trace of the brothers' remains at all. It is said the vampire's love of blood or family members best and that the procession of the vampire remains in the New Orleans cemetery was zigzagging one to confuse the deceased sense direction. Apparently, this was enough to keep the Carter brothers away from their kin, but not enough to keep them from escaping the tomb. Ever since the, their entombment and subsequent escape from their family vault, people reported seeing the brothers out and about in New Orleans. Some living in their apartment located in the house at the corner of St. Anne and Royal Street claimed she saw two men on the balcony, just as they did the day the police ambushed them. The pair of specters leapt from the balcony and into the ether. Other stories about the brothers' return center around the celebration of Mardi Gras, and their favorite pastime being whispering on and then jumping from balconies. Legend has it, in order for one of them to turn a vampire, they must be fed upon seven times and live. According to many reports, several of the living victims found in the Carter appointment fit these circumstances. Supposedly one victim named Philippe went on his own rampage, blood drinking, tallying at least 32 victims. His diary is found in Bourbon Street dwelling and documented his descent into madness, reporting crazed dreams of blood. He then disappeared from the city in 1949. Another source alleges that the different vampires emerged from the Carter apartment, eventually racking up a total of total murder 
442 people. There is no mention of drinking the victim's blood, but a vampire did allegedly dissolve bodies in acid instead. One victim escaped vampirism, but reportedly committed self herself involuntarily hmm, to an insane asylum after her ordeal. This house of horrors that held the Carter apartment is still in New Orleans in the corner of St. Anna Royal and is being rented to new tenants. Some residents see the brothers whispering in balconies for jumping in the street and running off. Supposedly the house lease is broken quite often due to strange happening from the former vampire lair. The brothers are also reportedly running on the loose throughout the city, terrifying those who recognize them. So like I said, even to this day, there's still accounts of the Carters showing up. Creepy. Uh-huh. So what do you guys think? Do you think they were real vampires? I think it could be. I, I wish that we had the records, like proper records, mm-hmm. because yeah. I want I want more definitives. But mm-hmm. there's a there's a lot of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot of inconsistency in the reports here. Mm-hmm. You know, things. It's a matter of days, a matter of years, as far as when they were tried or convicted, yep. uh, or sentenced and killed. We don't know if it was 1932 or 1934 when the girl reported the brothers. Yep. Um, lots of lots of things going on here. We don't we don't even know if the brothers escaped or were arrested. We're sure they're real, missing. right? They're real. They were, they were real. dock workers. Okay. That's, that's all that's just making about. sure. Now, the only thing that I find uh, is a problem with them being vampires is they were from pre dawn to dusk. So they worked during the daytime as laborers, they but they were vampires prefer- at night. They didn't have prophyria. They had hematosis. Hematosis? It's Jazzis? a possibility. It might be why they drank blood, too. Yes. Hemocrit. So technically, they might have been vampires. They might have just been suffering from something. But all those victims. Not euphoria, but something else. All those victims, you got to think that's a lot of blood to be drinking. That is. Did he, were they drinking them to death, or were they just drinking them? The, the, bodies, the bodies that they found were they drained found of bodies. blood. Okay. Well, they, were, they did find bodies. Yes. Okay. So uh, some of them were just sitting there being drained a little bit at a time. So you're like wondering. But what's the average? What is the body's average uh, for blood? It's what? Two pints, I think it is. No. Five liters. Um, How much? I don't remember. Blood is in a human body. Not poop, but blood. (laughs) Spelling is fun. (laughs) Approximately 1.2 to 1.5 gallons or 10 units of blood. How much can so you donate? About two liters. You can donate. You would know. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, I haven't given whole blood in forever. Um, you can give an IV bag full. <laughs> I don't remember how much it is. A unit. Um, <laughs> and I give I give double platelets, but that's platelets, so they put most of my blood back in. So, uh, you can only give ten percent of your blood. Okay. Before See, I couldn't you, remember yeah. what it was. Okay. I'm going to use it. So, them just drinking uh, an exorbitant amount of blood as they did was enough to kill the victim. Yep. Without uh-huh. draining them, and, and some of these victims were drained. Yep. Creepy. There we go. 10.5 pints or 5 liters. There we go. Okay. And you can give that a pint at a time. I see tetons. <laughs> All right, well, let's go, on, sleeping. let's go on to the next one. Um, this is a story brought to us by Dr. Fright. <laughs> but it is an alleged true account of the Ojai vampire. Ojai. Local legend for us, Ojai, California. California. Yeah. Okay. I thought you were trying to say Ohio. I'm like, no, 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 no. Ojai, Southern California. I know where Ojai is. So 
this was uh, something Dr. Frank gave us on Saturday, November 20th of 2021. So the Ojai Vampire is a vampire who purportedly moved to Ojai, California during 1890 and set up a house near the Creek Road. Though he was always regarded as a vampire, his appearance was said to be a rotten corpse. Uh, they like... The likely vampire was held responsible for the missing animals and cattle mutilation. He was also blamed for the mysterious disappearances and sometimes murder of random people. The processing of commercial information is complete. Back to the show. So this man moves to Ojai, California, and he's automatically regarded as a vampire and looking like a rotten corpse. Just because you're ugly, you're going to be a vampire? You know, to say that we Americans are uh, graceless, tactless creatures mm -hmm. puts it mildly. Yeah. Well, aside from the fact that cattle go miss, go, go get your into blood and everything. Yeah. Nothing to do with him being an old man. But anyway, <laughs> according to urban legend, vampire relocated to the Ojai area around 1890 from either Italy or Spain. He acquired a small ranch near Creek Road and kept a low profile. However, as soon as he arrived, local cattle began turning up dead and drained of blood. Shortly thereafter, locals were assaulted by strange wolf-like creatures. The townsfolk got up in arms and, realizing that the vampire was in their midst, raided the vampire's ranch during the day. The villagers set up a hunting party to kill the alleged Ohio vampire, but the vampire was prepared for that. The local citizens found not only a windowed stone sarcophagus at his home, but also a huge black phantom blood-drinking dog guarding it. Uh, the ranchers eventually repelled the dog with a silver crucifix and closed in on the vampire's above-ground stone tomb hidden by underbrush and weeds. Realizing its master was in trouble, the black beast charged the ranchers again, only to be turned away as they sprinkled holy water at the hell beast. With the dog retreating, the ranchers opened the stone casket and staked the evil monster that lay within, thus ending the vampire's short reign of terror. Da -da -da. <laughs> the casket or stone sarcophagus is said to still be there, hidden away amongst the brush and weeds. It is an above-ground tomb with a small window in it, as I said. You supposedly can peer in through the window and still see the skull of the vampire. According to some stories, the townspeople took the vampire's body and sealed it in a slab made of cement. The slab was allegedly hidden in a place near Camp Comfort County Park. Up to this day, people are claiming that they know the location of the slab but would not divulge it. It's also usual for those people to meet up and search for the vampire remains or even the alleged sarcophagus found inside his house. However, the haunting did not end with the death of the Ohio Vampire. It was believed that his pet, the Black Dog, still haunts the area of Ohio up to this day. <coughs> Excuse me. The Black Dog was thought to bring a bad omen to those who would see it. Excuse me. Sorry. Kind of like the kind of like those Black Dog legends, you yes. know, that we talked about in previous episodes. So, based on the Chumash elders, a Black Dog is from a from a. Uh, it's a form of Nunashish, an evil phantom that serves as a familiar or guardian of a particular place. So there are many recent accounts attributed to the Ohio Vampire as well, especially for people who live near Camp Comfort. 
Some people claimed that they'd seen a strange green light. Students at CSUCI also divulged their eerie experiences, such as the continuous banging of the pipes. There were also creepy stories regarding the old hospital that had been transformed into a daycare. It's been speculated that this legend cropped up from a possible real-life above-ground tomb. It's possible that an old family near the turn of the century could have buried their dead in this manner upon their estate. It's not only not unheard of, but also apparently the custom of the time in certain parts of Europe. Even the window in the stone coffin isn't completely unheard of. Stating that, however, if you are wandering around Camp Comfort County Park and come upon a stone sarcophagus with a skeleton inside, don't pull out the wooden stake. No, no. <laughs> Do not try to play King Arthur. No, you're not pulling the Excalibur from the stone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. Anyway, <laughs> would you like to do the next one, Tracy? Sure. Okay. If I this is what we talked about earlier. Nice. This is what we talked about earlier, Mercy Brown. We're back to Mercy. So yeah. Vampire Mercy Brown, when Rhode Island was the vampire capital of America, not the uh, murder capital of America, Santa Carla. But I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've had sugar today. Anywho. Uh, this is by Charles T. Robinson, October 4th, St. Francis Day, 2022. Mm -hmm. First published as the words of, on Nellie's tombstone, Yankee Magazine, in January 1994. The villagers of Exeter, Rhode Island, knew that farmer George Brown had a problem. First, in 1883, his wife, Mary Brown, succumbed to a mysterious illness. Six months later, his 20-year-old daughter, Mary Olive Brown, also fell ill and died. Within the next several years, his 19-year-old daughter, Mercy Brown, was also dead. And George's teenage son, Edwin Brown, a healthy lad who worked at a store as a store clerk, became suddenly frail and sick. The village doctor informed George that consumption was taking his family. But the country folk in Exeter had other explanations. So here we have another case, that we, like we talked about earlier, of tuberculosis hitting the town yep. and people getting sick from it. Yep, yep, yep. Um, on a chilly March afternoon in 1892, a group of men entered Exeter's Chestnut Hill Cemetery. Then they began to exhume the bodies of George Brown's wife and two daughters. They concluded that one of the deceased was leaving the grave at night to suck the life out of his relatives. Only by killing the vampire could young Edwin be saved. Catches people are just bringing up more goo mm -hmm. and sharing the, the anywho sorry like you said before but they don't know that <laughs> yeah i know but my brain goes back to science and that's because i'm more modern than yeah anywho i'm sorry i will stop digressing in theory that's okay in theory um the first men examined the bodies of miss brown and, and daughter mary finding them to be properly decomposed and began to exhume marcy brown slowly they shoveled into mercy's grave when they reached the corpse suddenly they stepped back in terror Mercy, who had been buried more than two months, had appeared oddly well-preserved. It seemed that her hair and nails had grown, and when the men cautiously prodded the corpse with the shovel, they found that she was still filled with fresh blood. The suspected vampire's heart was removed and burned on a nearby rock. The ashes were added to young Edwin's medicine, but still the boy died less than two months later. Uh, to, to the less superstitious, there were perhaps nothing unusual about the well-preserved condition of Mercy's body. She'd been the ground during the tallest months of the year, Mysterious wave of illnesses that swept George Brown's family was probably tuberculosis, but that did not keep Rhode Island from becoming known as the vampire capital of America. Uh, South County, whose isolated villages resembled the lonely hamlets of Transylvania, was a hotbed of vampire rumors between 1870 and 1900. 
When Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula in 1897, died, the newspaper accounts of, of vampire Mercy Brown were found in his files. So he did actually use her as a reference. Who did? Bram, Bram Stoker. Stoker. Um, they did it. The legends uh, persist to this day. In Rhode Island Historical Cemetery Number no. 2 stands a gravestone of, alleged, of the alleged vampire Nellie L. Vaughn of West, West Greenwich, who died in 1889 at the age of 19. The grave is supposedly cursed. One local university professor who studied vampirism claimed that no vegetation or lichen would grow on Nellie's grave, despite numerous attempts to plant there. And people are still taken aback by the inscription along the bottom of Nellie's tombstone. The curious words that read, I am waiting and watching you. That's not um, that on. That's not right. No, not at all. No, no. But let's talk about Nellie here for a minute. Uh, we got another story here about the unexpected vampire case of Nellie Vaughn. This is by AP Sylvia. No other references. Uh, <laughs> in a rural cemetery by an old wooden church lies the 19th century grave of a supposed vampire. Various paranormal stories have circulated about this site, and it has generated some public interest for a number of years. However, any vampire lore surrounding the deceased may simply be the 20th century case of mistaken identity. For a number of decades, there has been a persistent story that Nellie Vaughn, who is buried at Plain Meeting House Cemetery in West Greenwich, Rhode Island, was a vampire. People would say that grass and other plants wouldn't grow on her grave, as you, as you mentioned, and that the grave itself was sinking into the ground. Uh, we already talked about the epitaph saying, I'm waiting and watching for you. Now, it was taken to be a sinister indication of vampirism. Not that she's waiting on the other side. She knows she's going to the upper place or she's going to the darker place. And she knows you all done screwed up and I'm waiting for you. Exactly. <laughs> or, or she went to the lighter place and said, I was just waiting for you on yep. the other side. We're going to have some fun. Was the Puritan chance? I'm going to heaven and you are not. From Renaissance Fairs? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So the actual history appeared to be this. On March 31st of 1889, Nellie Louise Vaughn passed away from pneumonia at the age of 19. At first, her body was buried at her family's farm. However, in October of that same year, her mother was given permission to move Nellie's remains to a plot in a public cemetery. There's no evidence to suggest that any of Nellie Vaughn's contemporaries believed her to be a vampire after she died. Bless you. <laughs> Bless you, Bless you again. again. Her epitaph would have likely been seen as sentimental, given that she died in her youth, mm -hmm. as you said. Uh, so, how did Nellie get the dubious distinction of being a vampire? Although there's a possibility that her exhumation may have inspired something, there's a popular belief that high school students started this legend back in the 1960s. As that story goes, a high school teacher in Coventry, Rhode Island, told their students something about the Mercy Brown vampire incident. However, the teacher didn't provide the specific names or places. The students then went out hunting for a gravesite that fit with the general details they had and ended up finding Nellie Vaughn instead. Sadly, due to the vampire story, the cemetery has endured serious vandalism over the years. To preserve Nellie Vaughn's tombstone, it's been removed from the site. It's interesting to note that without visitors walking over the grave, the lack of vegetation and overall sinking are apparently no longer present. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Wonder well, of wonders. So, so my first thought was, okay, 
It was not people walking over there and constantly bugging her tombstone. Okay, my first thought was most New England tomb or gravestones are much like New England or English um, cemeteries. Okay, you had multiple people in one pitch mm-hmm. and dirt has to go somewhere. So you had mounds up, but if you don't, the box is going to collapse eventually. And that's when it goes down. Number right. one, right. number two, if someone's feeling vindictive, salting the earth still happens and salt takes a long time to grow out or to, to wash out. Otherwise everything there is dead. I mean, mm-hmm. Sorry. Now, She's here, right. Salt true. in the ground is a thing. And here's the twist. Well, we don't think Nellie Vaughn's a vampire anymore. Uh, some of the lore shifted to more of a ghostly one instead. People have reported hearing a young woman's voice near the gravesite saying, I am perfectly pleasant. It's also been said that a woman in Victorian clothing has been seen in the cemetery, but then vanishes. Some believe that because of the vampire confusion, the ghost of Nellie Vaughn is trying to clear her name. The pl- <laughs> possible, yeah. She's, no, really, I'm in heaven. No! <laughs> I'm a ghost. I'm not a vampire. Get it right. (laughs) The Plain Meeting House Cemetery sits adjacent to the West Greenwich Baptist Church, also known as the Plain Meeting House. It's a historic wooden structure that dates back to 1820. The cemetery is designated as a Rhode Island Historical Cemetery in West Greenwich, uh, WG002, whatever historical record that may be. There are a few parking spaces at the site. As mentioned above, Nellie Vaughn's grave now has no marker. So it's unclear exactly where her plot is. Uh, from what the writer has heard, it's near the large crypt. For those interested in visiting this site, they want to especially emphasize that it should be treated with respect. Yes. I agree. <laughs> Case Nellie Vaughn is certainly a unique one. It's likely this vampire accusation was leveled against her over 70 years after her death, mm-hmm. simply due to a case of mistaken identity. Uh, for the writer, the illust- uh, this illustrates how legends and lore can be born at any time. All it takes is belief. And once yep. those notions come into existence, they can grow and evolve as they as they're passed along. So it's like you know Chinese whispers. Yep. Well, that's not exactly Chinese whispers. Whispers. That's uh, that's the wrong term. I apologize, folks. It's just a telephone game. Well, it's kind of the same thing as Chinese whispers. It's, this is more of somebody. Say, well, the professor did say. A story but he didn't have the specific facts or anything yeah. like that the kids extrapolated what he said and came up with nelly vaughn as being uh, her two tombstone being the one they were looking for when in fact it was actually mercy brown they were looking for mm-hmm. well they had the e mm-hmm. that's all yep at the end you know mercy nelly they had the e anyhow i'm sorry whatever works <laughs> <laughs> so how do you feel dear you feel like doing one okay sorry well Next one, someone we've talked about before, but <laughs> I, I apologize, guys. Um, no worries. But uh, we didn't get into the, the into so, the vampiric side so much yep. of them. So why don't you uh, regale us about uh, so this one is of our favorites? The eccentric Jacques Saint Germain, as I try not to lose my teeth, <laughs> by Marita Cran- Crandall, updated January twenty eighth, twenty twenty one. The eccentric Jacques Saint Germain is said to have taken residence in a home at the home located at 1039 Royal Street. St. Germain was apparently a cavalier and quite the ladies' man, frequently seen with with beautiful women on his arm, strolling through the French Quarter or clubbing elegant locales late into the night. He He delighted in throwing elaborate dinner parties for the city's socialites. 
His parties were highly anticipated due to the lavish cuisine, fine wine, and entertainment. Most relish, however, was his own conversation. St. Germain fascinated his guests with stories of France, Italy, Africa, and Egypt. Snipple. <clears throat> Visitors were delighted and amused by his eloquent grasp of the English language. They were a bit confused, however, when he spoke of events hundreds of years in the past with such precise detail as though he himself had participated. Many guests placed little value on the truths of his tales, simply embracing them for the entertainment value during their visits to his home. Not long after his arrival in New Orleans, St. Germain claimed he was a direct descendant of the Comte de Saint Germain, a close friend and servant of King Louis the 15th in the 18th century. He claimed uh, his claim aroused skepticism, but his resemblance to the Comte was uncanny. Eagle-eyed guests noted that portraits never depicted the Comte as older than 40, the same age as Jacques Saint Germain, and appeared had appeared since he'd arrived in New Orleans. Rumors started to spread in jest that Jacques Saint-Germain may in fact be the very celebrated Comte Saint-Germain himself. I'm going to drop a couple words yeah, on just these. say Saint-Germain. Yeah. <laughs> or Jacques. <laughs> uh, somehow rendered immortal and ageless, Jacques seemed to enjoy the mystery he had created around his persona and neither confirmed or denied, or denied it. I love how as soon as we start, say, I start saying I'm going to drop things, they brought it down just to his first name. Mm -hmm. We're going to keep that one because, yeah. Um, uh, although St. Germain catered parties uh, were highly celebrated, the host was said to have relished in his guest's satisfaction or of the offered feast without partaking himself, often standing apart from the table, drinking from a lavish chalice, presumably filled with wine. During dinner, he offered fantastical re recollections of his adventures for guests and enjoyment. With every, single, with every strange habit of not partaking, partaking in the meals at his own soirees, coupled with a remarkable resemblance to the comte, he had some of the city suggesting good fun that perhaps he was the most mysterious man was in fact a vampire. Dun, 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 dun. These rumors took a sinister turn after several months after Saint Germain's arrival to New Orleans when the police were called to his home to investigate the circumstances leading to a woman who had seemingly fallen from the gallery. A full story above. Um, sorry, she fell gallery, from a full story from a full, above. Full, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, his guest, a woman who was rumored to have been a prostitute, had in fact leapt from his balcony rather than fallen, as bystanders had originally surmised. While she had survived the fall, she was terrified. People in the streets surrounded her and tended to her needs while help was rounded. Hysterical woman ranted that she had jumped to escape Saint Germain, who had bitten her neck. She screamed and sobbed about the story, claiming she was only able to escape her assailant uh, was briefly distracted by a rather loud knocking on his door was taken to the hospital as soon as possible, and the police, suspecting that she had become delusional, told the very well-known, well affluent, and respected St. Germain not to bother coming in for questioning at this later, but rather please visit the police station in the morning to go over the accounts of the evening. The police were confident that there was a reasonable explanation for what had transpired. Next morning, St. Germain never appeared in the police station. In fact, everyone chagrined he completely vanished overnight, leaving the majority of his belongings behind. Legend suggests that upon breaking into this house, the police were cautious in great anticipation of what they might encounter. On the second floor of the house, they discovered a series of open but corked wine bottles. Upon closer investigation, they discovered a large collection of bottles were filled with a terrifying mixture of wine, along with large quantities of human blood. Jacques was never seen again. He disappeared just as mysteriously as he arrived. As one can only imagine, his contemporaries were shocked about this scandal. Uh, feeling both betrayed and fooled. 
and probably a little disappointed that the fun had to come to an end. I think they were more worried about the fun coming to an end than anything else. <laughs> Just a little. Yep. But hey, you did sound a little vampirish to me. Mm -hmm. Just a little. Is that even a word, vampirish? I don't know. Uh, it works for me, so I'll allow it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have any say in that, but that's okay. Fair enough. So, I got a story here called JB Burial Number Four. Uh, so this is uh, an excerpt from Vampires in America by Edwin S. Royce of Royce. Boy, I'm getting the hard names tonight. Grosvenor, <laughs> October of 2020. In 1990, police in Griswold, Connecticut, were called to the scene of what was suspected to be a mass burial. They soon realized it was a fairly typical 19th century family burial and notified the state archaeologist. Nick Bellatoni. We talked about this one already, mm -hmm. uh, but the, we're elaborating a little bit more here. While supervising the exhumations, Bellatoni was struck by what came to be known as burial number four. Unlike the other simple graves, this one had heavy flat rocks on it with a red painted coffin underneath. The skeleton was found inside of an individual they called JB. Uh, he had been beheaded and his bones completely rearranged with many of the ribs deliberately broken. It turned out that in 1854, townspeople in a neighboring Connecticut village exhumed several corpses that they suspected were vampires that had risen from their graves to kill the living. The newspapers published lurid stories about the horrible superstition. Henry David Thoreau mentioned such an exhumation in his journal, writing that the savage in man is never quite eradicated. Perhaps the Griswold grave was desecrated for the same reason. Historians noted that the public hysteria almost invariably occurred in the middle of a terrible outbreak of tuberculosis. Indeed, medical tests ultimately revealed that JB had suffered from some lung disease, very like tuberculosis. Sometimes members of a rural family would contract the wasting illness, and even though they might have received a standard medical diagnosis, these early victims were judged to be vampires by survivors, and responsible after their deaths for preying upon family members who subsequently fell sick. Sometimes an exhumation would be performed to stop the alleged vampire's predations. So again, there you've got another story of tuberculosis taking yes. a family and being, being blamed for vampirism. Because that's um, what we do. Yeah. Yeah, we exhume corpses and infect ourselves, yes. Yep. <laughs> It is the way. It is the it way. It is known. This is the way. Yes. <laughs> this is the way. It is known. So what's next? So, other than me falling down the, the, the plot holes here, um, the terrifying tale of Peter uh -huh, Plogojovitz. I think we agreed it was Plog... I can't even say it now myself. Plogojovitz. Plogojovitz. Yes. We'll just call him Peter, yeah. <laughs> Uh, this is uh, put up by the Smithsonian and vampires.com. Mm -hmm. uh, back in the 1700s, vampire hysteria was all the rage in Europe. Everyone was deathly afraid of vampires rising from the grave to feed upon them and their loved ones. And thanks to that fear, I've got plenty of vampire stories for you, dear readers. One such story is that of Peter. We're not going to say his last name because I'll trip over it too many times. As it just so happens to be one of the most well-known and best documented cases of vampire hysteria. In 1725, the village of... Kislava, Serbia, a farmer by the name of Peter Vlogojevic died, but he didn't stay dead. Three days after his death, Peter returned from the grave, appearing before his son and demanding food. Apparently, the whole dying thing makes you very hungry. His son fed him, but the next night when Peter returned asking for more, the son refused him. So Peter left his boy 
and but not after giving him a threatening look. The next morning, the son was found dead. In a few days, uh, and after a few days, nine more people from the village were found dead as well. Before their deaths, each of these villagers complained of exhaustion and appeared to have lost large amounts of blood. If that wasn't suspicious enough, they also claimed to have dreamt about being visited by Peter. Uh, greatly alarmed by these events, the parish priest wrote the local magistrate who passed on the news to a nearby commander of imperial troops. He, two officers, and an executioner arrived shortly after receiving the message and promptly sent to exhuming the corpses of all who had died. What they found in Peter's grave shocked everyone. Pardon me. For Peter's corpse was perfectly preserved and his mouth was covered in blood. After the discovery, a stake was pounded to Peter's chest, blood gushing everywhere as they had... Um, as they burned his body to ash in a pyre, then they moved it onto the other bodies, the bodies of Peter's victims. These were reburied with normal preventative measures, garlic and white thorn placed in each corpse in the grave. And so was the end of Peter's reign of fear. The reason the case is so noticeable is because the countless, sorry, the completeness of the official accounts and the fact that it was so widely reported throughout Europe, vampires were serious and frightening matter back then. A rather gruesome-sounding autopsy revealed what were considered the telltale signs of vampirism. I did not detect the slightest odor that is otherwise characteristic of the dead, and the body was completely fresh, one witness wrote. The hair and beard had grown on him, the old skin, which was somewhat whitish, had peeled away, and a new fresh one from it had emerged under it. Not without astonishment, I saw some fresh blood in his mouth. Now, science brain kicks in. Yes. Rigor mortis lasts... Eight to 12 hours, mm -hmm. taking place up to four hours after death. Yes, so the body becomes pliable again so after that period pliable. of time. Mm -hmm. Blood congeals and then releases, much like rigor mortis. Mm -hmm. Skin will slough because you're bursting off the outer layers, but you have how many layers right. of dermis and the, epidermis? The epidermal layer is down underneath it. It's still going to look fresh because it hasn't sloughed off Exactly. Yet. And you still have shrinkage, so the hair and nails and teeth look bigger. So and the blood around the mouth is because of the liquids. Gurgling out from the, the gases right. escaping. Right. Now, now, mind you, you, he didn't smell the smells according to, to most, you know, dead. What time of year was mm -hmm. this? Uh, it does not say. It doesn't See? say. So, See, usually when they exhume for winter, I shouldn't be talking, I'm sorry, but no, no, it's usually okay. when they exhume people, it's winter preserves. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean. And and in the, this is what, 1800s? Mm -hmm. We were in the middle, we, we 1700s. We were in the middle of, of a mini ice age. Mm -hmm. That's what triggered part of the Black Death was coming out of the ice age. So we had we a little freeze up, area. Mm -hmm. Regions like Serbia, which are a little more northerly, are going to be, going to be affected more. Yes. However, <laughs> however, we are talking about a story where uh, the, the person didn't die of tuberculosis. True. Um, and the body wasn't exhumed because of that. This is because true. family members were dying as a result. Yes. They're, this story is generated because the victim or the alleged vampire came back exactly visited his family now now that could be this is me doing it again oh no <laughs> coma diabetes um okay yeah he couldn't okay, it's so, possible he may not have actually been dead exactly at if, least at the if, time if your heart rate or breathing drops down too low and it's cold hypothermia will help put you into a preserved state mm -hmm. So he's awake long enough to be hungry and ravenous, 
and fed the first time. And then he went back to where he knew he was supposed to be because your brain will put you on a path. This is where the pattern I'm supposed to be at. This is where I woke up. I'm going to go back to there. I'm in the grave. I'm supposed to be dead is what you're thinking yes. at this point. Or, okay. or this is where I woke up. I'm hungry. I'll pick on you. But this is also a family plot more than likely. Mm-hmm. It's not a big city, but we're bustling in. This is a, you know, a village. But why threaten your son when you don't feed, when go he doesn't home, feed you the hungry. second night? Second night you didn't feed me? Well, boy, I made you. Boy, I helped make it. What? I brought you in this world and I'll take you out. Exactly. So (laughs) wander back and then, you know, dad gives you stink eye and you realize dad's dead. Oh, boy. And then you drop dead the next day. And then you drop dead because you scared yourself to death. Okay. These are all possible explanations. Yes. I mean, now granted, if I don't know, they, they said that others were dreaming of him, not that he got there, but at the same point. Okay, well, I found something. But they're all on. suffering from loss of blood too. Now that see that once again could be anything from from porphyria, hema, you know, hema. What the hell's I'm looking for? Hematoma or no hemophilia? Hem- hemophilia. That's sorry, I knew about. the word. I just was like, oh, wait, what are we looking for? But I we're mean, talking about an entire village. They can't all be suffering from hemophilia. No. Well, it's okay. Once again, villages don't don't have a lot of of intermingling from other areas unless. Someone's traveling through. True. Inbreeding. So there's always it's a still... risk of inbreeding. Mm-hmm. It's not as, as royal recumbent, but it's still. But then there's also the fact that this could be just a story. Exactly. This could very well be, you know, hey, if we run with this one here. It's a way to scare the kids at night and make them stay in bed. Don't Maybe. Go out at night, the vampire will go get you. Yes. Don't, don't just come out, out at night. Because he'll yeah. get you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I just heart popped you. into my head when I you said you. that. <laughs> I heart Freaks you come at it. I heart you tons and tons. Okay, let's do another one. Let's do the story of Arnold Paoli. This is from Angie McKeg. Story of Arnold Paoli is one of the few vampire histories that has been sufficiently documented over the years to lend it historical validity. In the spring of 1727, Arnold Paley returned from service in the military to settle in his hometown of Medwengna near Belgrade. He bought some land, built a home, and established himself in the community. After a short time, he was betrothed to a local girl whose father's land bordered his, and the two were wed. Paley told his wife that he was haunted by fears of an early death. In the military, he'd been stationed in Greece. Local beliefs were that the dead once back, I'm sorry, that the dead come back to haunt the living in the form of revenants or vampires. While he was stationed there, he told his wife he had been visited by an undead being. Afterwards, he hunted down the unholy grave from which the undead being had come as well, I'm sorry, as was the local custom. He extracted his revenge upon the vampire by burning the corpse. However, the incident affected him so greatly that against the advice of his superior officers, he resigned from the military and came back to Medwenga. Shortly after his marriage, Paley fell back from a great height while working on the farm and was brought unconscious back to his home. He must have sustained internal injuries with the fall, for within a few days, Paley died and was buried in the town cemetery. A month after he died, there were several reports from people around the township who had seen Paley. A few had even seen him in their own home. Although these reports did not clearly state what he did while in these homes, 
For the most part, however, there was little panics. There was little panic stemming from these reports until a short time later. Several weeks after the initial reports, most of the people who had claimed Paoli had visited their homes turned up dead for inexplicable reasons, and a group was assembled to exhume the body of Arnold Paoli. The group consisted of two military officers, two army surgeons, and a priest from the local church, because you got to have a priest. Yep. When the group exhumed the body, they found a fresh corpse. There was no decomposition of the body whatsoever, and in fact, the old skin and nails had fallen off and new ones had grown to take their place. The final insult was the fresh blood that rested on the lips of the deceased Paoli. When one member of the group staked the body, they cried out and fresh blood spilled from the wound. The group then scattered garlic around the remains and did the same to each of the graves where to Paoli had sent his newest victims. It was quiet in Midwanga for several years until 1737, when there was another spate of inexplicable deaths. This time, the town took no chances and immediately sent out a group to the graveyard to investigate. The resultant report has ended up in many history books over time. It was signed by three renowned army surgeons and consigned by a lieutenant colonel and his sub-lieutenant. Of all the body they disinterred during the investigation, they once again found no less than 11 corpses which displayed the same marked traits as the Paoli corpse. No decomposition, although many had been interred several months previous to their inquiry. Fresh skin grown, fresh blood in the arteries and in the heart. The complete medical report is available in many modern vampire histories. No explanation has been given for the later outbreak of vampirism, although one theory holds that Paoli had feasted on local cattle as well as people during his vampiric reign. Then the story states, as time passed over, as time passed, and the cows were killed for their meat, the vampire qualities were passed on to anyone who ate the meat. Yeah, I'm gonna make one edit there. It was seven. It was thirty-two, not thirty-seven. Oh, my apologies. <laughs> uh, just one of those. I want to make sure we got that on the right one. Yep. But here again, you got a story of somebody who dies, comes back, and haunts the town. Yep. Um, in this case, though, he wasn't sick. He fell in died yes so he died from his injury and came back as a, as a revenant as a vampire or whatever <clears throat> call it what you will um i found it interesting that in the description of how they found the body that not only was the skin sloughed off and new skin growing but the, the nails, nails had come yeah. off and that new one, nails I, were growing I, there too i don't have a story a theory for i do okay uh the skin sloughing off if it was sloughing off the hand what was coming through was not the nail, but the actual bone. Okay. And that could look like long nails. That could, yes. So that's a good possibility there, in my opinion. But, you know, if not, hey, maybe he was a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe. Yeah. Your be. turn. My turn. Okay. <laughs> uh, this next one here is Frederick Ransom, the Vampire of Woodstock. Excerpt from, the, from Among the Undead in Woodstock by... Emma Jean Hawley, Valley News staff writer, published seven, or, uh, July 9th, 2018, at 10, 10 p.m.-ish, uh, modified the same day, uh, the second earlier. <laughs> or about an hour later, depending no, no, no. on how you look at it. 10 p.m. or 10, 10 to point 11 p.m. 0.12. It was modified a second early. I don't know. Computers are fun and fundamental. It was published and modified on the same day. Yes. 
uh, by modern day standards, 20 year old Frederick Ransom was dead to begin with. But when someone died of tuberculosis in 1817, one can never be too careful. Before modern medicine shed light on the area, of, uh, on the idea of cont contagion, even doctors in Woodstock thought the string of deaths within a household could be due to a vampire in the family who would return from the grave to feast on the lives of their kin. Ransom's brother, Daniel, was only three years old at the time of Frederick's death. He recalled for the rest of his life how much it frightened him when a local physician, Dr. Frost, paid a visit to their home. It seemed that more than he remembered, sorry, more than he remembered Frederick, Daniel remembered keeping the shy, keeping shy of the doctor, fearing he would freeze me. He wrote some 80 years later in his memoir, an, an excerpt of which was provided by the Woodstock History Center's education coordinator, Jenny, 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 ha, ha, Jenny Shirtsluff. Shirtleff. God's bless me. I can't speak tonight. Shirtleff. Um, Daniel had known what was coming. He might have, sorry, had Daniel known what was coming, he might have feared being burned instead. The antidote for vampirism was thought to be, was thought to lie in a cauldron over a flame. We're going to bake the baby. Um, these exorcisms involved exhuming the suspected vampire from their grave and examining the corpse for symptoms of being undead. Bloating, blood around the mouth, blood over the heart or liver, hair, nails, and continued to be after death. To protect others in the family for the same fate, the blood-filled organs of the dead were, were to be burned down to cinders and often consumed in some way, eaten, imbibed, and hailed by their relatives. Ransom's father figured it might be wise to take precautions, so the Dartmouth College student was dis disinterred. His consumptive heart cut out of his body and burned in a blacksmith's forge in the Woodstock Village Green. However, it did not work, it did not prove to be a remedy, Daniel Ransom wrote. Her mother, sister, and two brothers died of that disease afterwards. Ransom's surviving brother, Daniel, later wrote, It has been related to me that there was a tendency in the family to consumption, and that I would die rather, sorry, would, would die with it before I was 30. Happily, uh, when Daniel Ransom, Ransom wrote these words, he was 80 years old. Dun, dun, dun. So here we've got another another character who died of consumption or tuberculosis. And in this story, again, the hair and nails grew. So mm -hmm. probably, like I said, the sloughing off the bone, uh, the, the, thing, uh, the skin around the hand and revealing the bones. Um, yeah, basically dad didn't take any chances. You know. Yep. Dig him up, burn his heart, feed it to your brother. Let's do it. And it worked for him, mm -hmm. but no one else. Of course, he probably somehow avoided consumption or... He got had, lucky, yeah. You know, so, some people, like Typhoid Mary, don't show the symptoms. They just you know, she spread the symptoms. They're carriers. They're not uh, sufferers. Yep. So I think that's pretty much our, our deal on, vamp on real vampires for tonight. Yep. I mean, a lot of them obviously probably weren't vampires. They were just people who had consumption or tuberculosis or porphyria. Um, or, 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 yeah. Or combination thereof. Um, but there are some where the accounts are just vague. Yes. You, can't, you don't know for sure. Missing information. And it's fun to think about that these people could actually have been real vampires. Like that picture you just showed me of the cat <laughs> tearing through the paper and you see these long things Read the words. let's see it says schrodinger's cat is alive and very angry yes <laughs> i can imagine anyway <laughs> in the meantime in between time. Yeah. so what are your thoughts about it so scientifically speaking 
vampirism to me is very real possibility. But okay. in the context of what? In the in the context of everything that that, that we have seen, um, you know, being dependent or low low hemocrit, you know, perfuriate things like that, it's a very well possibility that that vampirism is is you know as not as the the, the sci-fi, not as the um, not as Bram Stoker. They're not the undead blood Not the undead, but but you know people who are suffering. Yes, and mental whether it be mental instability or you know. Yes. Oh, we didn't even get into that. No, that could be. <laughs> that's a topic for another night. That, exactly. That brings up your vampire serial killers, which we are not going to discuss. That on this brings podcast. it to my show. Yeah. <laughs> which I should get off my butt and start doing. You really but. should. Yes. I've got ideas. I just. Well, time we that. put those ideas up. I mean, if we can do this, we can do yours. I know we were supposed to do my last. Or yours, week, Tracy. Life kind of got in the way. Is life in the way for you? A lot. A lot. Yeah. I mean, I'm the one who keeps being missing in action because stuff. Life. Stuff. Yeah. Because of things. Yes. Things. Stuff. Stuff in things. Well, stuff and things can have to take a side order. <clears throat> yes, and if only it would all behave itself and stay in the side order. But mm-hmm. you know. That's all right. We'll get there eventually. Yep. I mean, those those podcasts are there for folks who want to listen. You can listen to Adri's podcast, the Who and the Podcast, Serial Killers and Crime, among other things. All sorts of stuff. All, all the bad stuff. Yep. All the weird stuff. <laughs> and the weird stuff, yeah. weird stuff. Not our weird stuff. we did Florida Man. That was weird. I remember yes. that. Is that mine or yours? That was yours. And it was oh fun. yeah, that was mine. <laughs> it was enjoyable. I thought. I was very enjoyable, yep. Florida then, Man. And then of course there's Tracy's Why in the Podcast. Let's yep. not forget that. Nope. Not at all. I'm not again it. Which I still got to say, Tracy's got an episode. She needs to. She drop. has it in the can. She hasn't figured out what can. she's doing with it yet. For some reason, you can't figure out how to how to drop it. It, it just it doesn't want to be dropped right now, and I don't know why. It's a, I keep trying, but here's a suggestion: table it and find something else to do. Probably should. Adrian's that way, been, Adrian's been doing that for months. No, tabling a certain. <laughs> no, table the subject she's not sure about and find something find else. Something else, yes. Yeah. That way she can get on with her podcast and then maybe post it later on down the road once, road once the issue she's having with it, she figures out what it is, mm-hmm. goes away, resolves itself, or doesn't. I mean, I think I know what the issue was, but I'm just going to put that off right now. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it was that, but I don't. It just it doesn't want to hit. Escape from the ether, so I don't know. You just look at it and say it's not ready. Yes. Yep. <laughs> That's understandable. Adrian's <laughs> petting her, her Christmas or her Mother's, Mother's Day, Day yep. It's adorable. It's cute. Yes, you want to tell people what it is? What we got My here? niece made me. Um, she didn't pay a cent for any of this. She bought the yarn, I'm sure. It's upcycled, and it's a Jack Skellington music box with a light up. Uh, stick that he's sitting on apparently now that I look at it more it looks a little obscene but um, <laughs> and it's part of a snow globe that broke so she repurposed the bottom and put a glass ornament light bulb for a Christmas light bulb um, in t- and so, uh, on top of the base and then put, put a crochet Jack Skellington into it with a zero glued to the top it's just adorable I'm sorry I love it <laughs> 
she puts some good work into it. Oh, she does amazing work when she when she puts her mind to it. She she's so much she's so much better at crochet than than her mom and I ever were. If she had stuff like that when she was selling out there, she might have she might have made some major major money. This is actually upcycled though. This was a snow globe or something that Tina had in her storage. She was gonna throw it away. So Cindy, if you're listening, and I know you're not. You're not listening. She never does. If you ever do listen to this podcast, many many make stuff like this. This is stuff that will actually sell. I'm sure that uh, once Adri posts a picture of it, I already did. There's gonna be a lot of people who want to know who made it, where it was made. I also tagged them in it. I tagged both of them in the thing and thank both Cindy and Dustin because every time she get like halfway through a spot, she Dustin, I need you. (laughs) He even said that he's like Dustin, he's part of it. Like I'm part of your project. Mm How many things have you helped me finish with Lots your? Of this man can embroider like most better than most people I've ever met. He's much better at it than I am. Self-taught too. Self-taught <laughs> encyclopedia book of of um, embroidery stitches and stuff. He's very good. He's also very good with clay. When, when he, once he figures out what he's going to do and sticks to it for a while, he's good at it. But then he gets distracted. Yeah. Distraction happens to a lot of people. I know. So. Yeah, that's why I podcast. That's, That's your biggest distraction, distraction yeah. right there. <laughs> Out of my head. But anyway, I think it's time to go. You folks all have a good night. Stay tuned for our next episode in probably about two weeks' time. Uh, until then, if you want to get a hold of us, you can contact us through the message uh, system here on whatever podcast you're listening to. Or on Facebook. Just tap the link. Or there. in our groups. Facebook. Look at what in the podcast Facebook. It's a time sucker. Stop it. (laughs) You can find us at the What in the Podcast Facebook group or email us at whatinthepodcast at gmail.com. Yes. So, oh, and also don't forget, we've got t-shirts for sale right now. We do. We have t-shirts for What in the Podcast with a brand new logo on it. You can find them on our site at redbubble.com. I will post a link tonight when I post this episode. There's 91 items for sale right now on that. And Tracy is super happy and hyper and excited. I She's might dancing. have a few things in my wish list that I'm going to be able to afford to buy. The shower in, curtain, right? No. Oh, well. <laughs> but in June after the Lavender Festival, I'll be able to afford it. And yeah. I might have put in a sweatshirt, t-shirt, and then went over your other stuff that was there and picked out, I think it was... Another shirt. The koi and, fish? Um, the fighting fish, I mean? No. Everybody so loves that one. The doctor one. The flaming And Yeah. yeah so, everybody likes oh, the, the doctor one that I used to have? Is it the one that had Capaldi on it? It has a TARDIS and doctor spilling out of it. Oh, the cartoony one? Yes. It's the one I call okay. Bigger on the Inside. Bigger on the Inside. Yes. He also did one with the different, different faces of the doctor as a clock. And it got Capaldi <laughs> in the middle. When Which he was has first strangely doctor. disappeared from the website. That one's disappeared from the website. Yeah, it's just like just like my other one. That was supposed to be my new. You're supposed to replace my shirt. Like, I know, but now I can't. Ate. They've removed it from the site, and I can't replace it anymore. Why? Because it's not there anymore. You can't put it back in. If I can find a copy of it, I can re-enter it and try. Okay. But if you do that, if I'll they buy dropped it. it, it's probably for a reason. Somebody else probably has a design similar to mine, just like my last one. Yeah, they pissed me off when they got rid of your Erica Body one. That one was a good one. Anyway, enough said. Let's go. Yep. <laughs> That's enough ranting and raving for one night. People want to get some rest or go on to the next podcast episode, and I don't blame them. No, not at all. We're kind of long-winded. <laughs> not exactly what I meant, but hopefully the next episode will be the next one we play. Yes. If not, either way, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Uh, 
See you at the next one. Stay spooky and cue the gremlin. What in the Podcast is a part of the What in the Podcast network and is available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other great podcast formats. You can find us on Facebook at the What in the Podcast Facebook group. If you have a great story idea or have a personal paranormal event that you want to share with us, email us at whatinthepodcast at gmail.com with your story, or you can leave us a voice message by clicking the link in the episode description. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to leave us a review and rate us five stars. It doesn't seem like much, but it helps us more than you can imagine. What in the Podcast is also made possible thanks to our sponsors and listeners like you. Thanks for listening.